grace and peace be multiplied to each of you this evening in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a blessing to be here tonight. I am grateful and thankful for my friend and brother and for the invitation and for the opportunity to be here with you tonight to worship Jesus, to fellowship together, and to study his word. When I was a boy, I used to always hear the older people in my daddy's church and in my family say that you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. And over the years of my journey, I haven't been able to pick the friends either. <laughs> By God's own providence, he's brought people into my life and out of my life. And um, providentially, the Lord has brought Brian Sams into my life. Um, I, uh, please permit me, I get an opportunity to preach a lot of conferences and things like that. And there are places for my soul's sake that I need to go that I don't know where I'm going every now and then. And uh, I received the invitation several years ago to come and did not know pastor, did not know this church and was yet moved to say yes. And as uh, Brian mentioned, uh, what we thought was a preaching engagement was the development of a friendship. And I'm grateful, grateful to God for him. I just um, landed this afternoon home. I have an early flight back out tomorrow uh, with my family. Tomorrow's my birthday. and. Uh, I have to speak at a conference this weekend. And this, none of that's about me. This is about my affection uh, for Pastor Brian. I, I wanted to work to make sure I could be here. Um, just because he's always been there for me. Uh, he texted me a few months ago and said, my church has given me a, some days of rest. I'm taking a vacation, and I'm going to come to hear you preach. And me being a good friend here and my brother needed some rest, I said, why don't you preach for me? <laughs> uh, and he graciously did. And so I, I'm, I'm paying back a favor tonight. But it is also good to be with you, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you'd get your copy of God's word, let me pray. Then there's a passage out of Philippians 1 that I want to talk to you about tonight. Father, we have many reasons to praise you. Above all, tonight we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. We thank you and bless you and praise you 
that by his blood and righteousness you have opened for us a new and living way to you. That we may even now draw near to the throne of grace because of Christ. To receive mercy and grace to help us in the time of need. We need you tonight to help us to hear clearly and speak faithfully the wisdom of your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Even tonight I pray that you would help us to lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander so that as newborn infants we may crave the pure spiritual milk of your word and grow thereby having tasted of your goodness. Grant me tonight physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness and clarity. May Christ be exalted as the word is explained, we pray. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1. I want you to note with me tonight verses 3 through 8. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. <clears throat> I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I want to um, lift a line from verse 5 to label this message, partnership in the gospel. Yes. Partnership in the gospel. <clears throat> In his book, The Power of Church, The Power of Loving Your Church, Dan Hansen wrote about what he called the ball cap crisis that erupted in his congregation when several teenaged boys started wearing baseball caps in the worship services. Not wanting to be viewed as a closed-minded or narrow-minded traditionalist, Hansen initially permitted the boys to wear their caps in church. This made him, of course, a hero to some, particularly the boys and their families. But as you can imagine, there were other members who were offended and outraged by these happenings. He writes that eventually he changed his mind. He forced the boys to remove their caps and the families left the church and the crisis quieted. He writes that he did not change his mind because of any external pressure. Rather, the whole ordeal, he writes, made him think about the nature, the mission, and the function of the church in ways he had not done in years. And he concluded that the issue was something bigger than ball caps, individualism, and tradition. Yeah. 
He said the decisive factor was when he asked himself this question. Do I pastor a church or just a collection of individuals? Do I pastor a church or just a collection of individuals? How would you answer that question tonight? Do you view the church as just a collection of individuals? Unfortunately, there are many professing believers who view the church that way, just a collection of individuals. There was a time when the saints saw themselves as pilgrims traveling together through a foreign land on their way home. Now we are more prone to view ourselves as tourists who just happen to be on the same bus with different, even competing concerns, priorities, and agendas. And as a result, man-centered philosophies now dominate church life, like individualism, relativism, subjectivism, pragmatism. You can see it. I mean, sometimes as a pastor, literally, you can see it on Sunday morning. In the attitude of people who sit in worship with a posture that all but announces that if this church doesn't meet my needs, suit my taste, or keep my interest, I'm going to go across town and find me another church. And this me first mentality has also affected how many pastors and congregations evangelize the lost. There are many pastors and congregations these days that seem to be willing to do virtually anything just to draw a crowd. Leaning over to reach the world, the church has fallen in. We have lost the power of our witness in our culture because in too many instances, the church is only offering what the world offers, except our offer is dressed up in religious terminology. I contend tonight, brothers and sisters, that we need to go back to the basics and ask the fundamental question, what is the church? And I stand tonight to say to you that the church is not, I repeat, is not a collection of individuals. The church is, in the words of Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, the church is a partnership in the gospel. One translation renders it fellowship in the gospel. Another translation renders it participation in the gospel. But note the the term that doesn't change in the various renderings, the gospel. That's the key element to a proper view of the church. You want to get the church right, view it through the lens of the gospel. All of the 
priorities of the church, all of the proper priorities of the church, from exalting the glory of the Lord to reaching sinners for Christ to nurturing believers to maturity, all of those proper priorities would come to pass, I'm convinced, naturally, organically, inevitably, if the church just keeps the gospel first and allows his life to be shaped by the gospel. The church is a partnership in the gospel. This is what you find in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. This passage is Paul's thanksgiving for the church. And as you read it on the surface, what is obvious is the close connection between Paul and the Philippians. But as you read beneath the surface, surface you will notice that the, the bond between Paul and the saints at Philippi was something greater, deeper, and stronger than mere close human friendship. Paul and these saints were bound together, linked together, connected together in gospel partnership. Yes, sir. And I want to lift for you tonight three dynamics of gospel partnership between pastor and people. Consider, first of all, the affirmation of gospel partnership. That's verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5 are words of affirmation. Really, in verses 3 through 5, Paul lifts the veil of the private chambers of his own praying ground and invites the saints into his private devotions in order to affirm the bond that they shared in Christ. Notice how he affirms this bond. First in verse 3, with perpetual thanksgiving. He says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You do know, friends, one of the worst things you can call a person is ungrateful. For a person who has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to be ungrateful is a weird irony, a gross sin, a great contradiction. Saved people are grateful people. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says we should be giving thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. What a big statement. Whatever you are going through tonight, if in the midst of it you are not thankful, you are out of the will of God. Are you grateful? Well, I'll grant you that one and assume that you are a grateful, thankful person tonight. Let me, let me then raise a follow-up question. For what are you grateful? And as you consider that question, I submit to you tonight that if the list of things for which you are grateful has on it more 
things than people, you have misplaced priorities. Who are the people you are thankful for? What are the relationships in your life for which you can give God grateful praise? And in that list of praise-inducing relationships, could you add your relationship to your church? Could you say of your church what Paul says to the Philippians in verse 3? I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Let me try that again. It doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing, what's going on. When you come to mind, it causes me to pause and spontaneously give thanks to God. Before you look for a loophole, let me be quick to insert the fact that Paul didn't speak this way because the church at Philippi was a perfect church. It was not. He will have to address trouble and fear and division in this church. In chapter 4, he calls out two sisters by name <laughs> and pleads with the rest of the church to help these sisters work out their differences. The church at Philippi was not a perfect church. But somehow, Paul was able to look past unresolved conflict, bad memories, difficult personalities, and still say, every time I think of you, it causes me to give thanks to God. How was he able to do that? Well, if I could get ahead of myself, jump verse 3 down to verse 6 where he says, I am confident that he that had begun a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Even though this was not a perfect church, Paul could see the hand of God at work in the lives of his people. Because he could see the work of God in the life of the people. He was able to look beyond what wasn't right in the church yet. And give thanks. To God. I wish I had a whole sermon's worth of time to hang out there. But, but brothers, just remember Philippians 4 and 6. You can't be anxious and thankful at the same time. One will chase away the other. Maybe you've come here these days with Anxieties and concerns and worries about the church or the place where God has called you. One remedy is, is thanksgiving to God. In the midst of all that is going on, there is much to thank God for. There is, we see perpetual thanksgiving, but then there is intercessory prayer. Paul says in verse 4 that my thanksgiving bleeds into my prayers. And he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, I am making my prayer with joy. Here, note verse 4, is the open secret to what made Paul's life so joyful, his faith so strong, 
and his ministry so fruitful. Paul was a man of prayer. He prayed. You know that uh, Philippians is one of the so-called prison epistles of Paul. Paul wrote this letter while under house arrest in Rome. He was awaiting trial. He did not know if he would be convicted and condemned or vindicated and released. Yet, he still has an open door for gospel work because even though he couldn't get to his pulpit, he could still get to his prayer closet. He said, I'm... I'm they, they can stop me from going to the pulpit to preach, but they can't stop me from getting on my knees to pray. And, and his devotion to prayer is evidence in the fact that he didn't just pray for himself. He says, always in every prayer of mine, I am making my prayer for you with joy. Literally, he says here, that whenever I pray. I never pray for myself without remembering to pray for you. I don't think you get the magnitude of that, brothers. Two words that'll help you get the magnitude of Paul's devotion to prayer in verse 4. He says, here's the first word, I'm praying for you all. I'm praying for all of you. He says, I make my prayer for you all and drop down to verse 7. He says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all. Still in verse 7, you are all partakers with me of grace. Verse 8. God is my witness how I yearn for you all. He keeps using this inclusive language. He says, I'm praying for all of you. Your attitude toward me does not determine my prayerfulness for you. It is a reminder that there is no place for cliques and divisions and tribes in the church of Jesus Christ. No, no place for partisanship in the Christian community. And I dare say that anyone in the church who is operating with an us versus them mentality is not of Christ. Paul says, I'm praying for you all. But here's the second key word in verse about his prayer life. He says, I'm not only praying for you all, he says, I am praying for you all with joy. Philippians is called the epistle of joy. Paul mentions joy and rejoicing some 16 times in this letter. But did you know this is the first reference to joy in the epistle of joy? The first reference to joy in the epistle of joy is Paul's testimony 
of the joy he gets in praying for the saints. Makes me ask, what brings you joy? Do you find joy in prayer? Do you view prayer as a burdensome duty or a wonderful privilege? And do you find joy in the privilege of interceding on the behalf of the saints? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear. All because we do not carry what? Everything to God in prayer. So there is perpetual thanksgiving. There is intercessory prayer. And in verse 5, there is gospel partnership. Verse 5 explains the reason for his spontaneous thanksgiving and his perpetual prayers. He says, it is because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If I may. The, the word here is koinonia. Commonly translated fellowship. But I'm, I like this. Partnership. The word fellowship has become debased and devalued. We label fellowship as any time we're getting together at the same place having a good time. I preach in churches. And they build a whole building sometimes so that after the service, you could be herded in there to drink, drink stale punch and eat hard cookies, and they dare call it the fellowship hall. <laughs> but, but Christian fellowship is not merely about being at the same place, doing the same thing at the same time, it's not about sharing warm feelings of mutual camaraderie. Paul and the Philippians were not in the same place. And throughout this opening chapter, he states his uncertainty that they will meet again. And yet he says confidently, we are linked in the gospel. There is partnership in the gospel. That word partnership, I believe, is a better translation because it, it gets to the commercial implications of the original term. D.A. Carson illustrates the word by saying Johnny and Harry decide to start a fishing business together. And they both go in their savings to buy a to get the money to buy a boat and invest and sacrifice to get their new shipping business off the ground. Carson says, that's fellowship. It's mutual sacrifice in fulfillment of a common vision. I think that gets closer to what Paul is talking about here. He is saying, 
We have been called into business together. We are linked by partnership. What is the basis of this partnership? Glad you asked. Their partnership, what linked them together, their fellowship was not based upon pastoral vision, congregational culture, church tradition, musical styles, ministry programs, geographic location, physical structures. He says what binds us together is something greater, deeper, stronger than that. We are partners in the gospel. If I may say this oddly, they were so linked in the gospel that Paul felt confident to mention the gospel without pausing to explain it. <laughs> he, he didn't always feel comfortable like that. He, he writes to the, to the Corinthians, he says, let me, let me tell you about the gospel we preach and then let me remind you. He doesn't remind them here, but we, we need to be reminded that the gospel is good news. Actually, it's bad news, good news, worse news, best news at the same time. The bad news is that we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. The worst news is that there is nothing we can do to satisfy the righteous demands of God. There's nothing good in us to commend to God. The good news is, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the righteous life we could never live and died the death of punishment we deserve to die. And the best news is that if tonight, if tonight you run to the cross, Throw yourself on the mercy of God and trust in the bloody cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Tonight, you can have free forgiveness, new life, and eternal hope. Paul says, that's what binds us together. Gospel that transcends Republican and Democrat. Lord, help me tonight. Gospel that transcends black and white. We, we are partners in the gospel from the first day till now. Ten years ago, when I first preached, he says, the gospel in Philippi. Till this very moment, as I pen these words, you have been partners with me in the gospel. Brothers, that's what pleases God. God is not impressed with our buildings and our programs, and our budgets, and our events, and our activity. What pleases God is when pastor and people are working together so that every man, woman, boy, and girl can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. And so there's the affirmation of gospel partnership. But let me secondly say a word about the assurance of gospel partnership. Verses 3 through 5 look back with a word of affirmation. Verse 6 looks forward with a word of assurance. In fact, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing. Literally, I'm sure of this. 
He says, I have reached a settled persuasion concerning you, and nothing can change my mind. I have, church, I don't know if I'll ever make it back there, but I have great expectations about your future. And nothing can change my mind. I'm sure of it. I'm, I'm convinced. I'm persuaded that the best is yet to come. Because of two divine acts. Act one. God has begun a good work in you. He says, um, I have confidence towards you, but my confidence towards you is not actually confidence in you. <laughs> my, my confidence towards you is actually rooted in another. He doesn't name the other. He describes him by his sovereign activity. He is the one who has begun a good work in you. Some commentators suggest that this is a reference to the love offerings that the church had provided for Paul. But, but no, Paul is talking about something much greater than that when he says that God has begun a good work in you. He is speaking of redemptive activity. What is this good work? It's in the word began or begun. That particular term is used twice in the New Testament. Here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul says, Oh foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, will you now be perfected in the flesh? False teachers bewitched the Galatians from the simplicity of the gospel, causing them to think that works had to be added to faith for salvation to be real. He says, who deceived you? For you to understand salvation, go back to how it began. It did not begin by anything you did. You got saved by a work of the Spirit. And what is begun in the Spirit can't be completed in the flesh. If God started it, he's got to finish it. And this it's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 1.6. God has begun a good work in you redemptively. When you repented of your sins and turned to Christ in saving faith, God began a good work in you. It's a good work. It's a work of God. And Paul's language seems to suggest to the saints, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, it's just the beginning. You ain't seen nothing yet. God has begun a good work in you. But here's the second divine act. Hold on to your seats. This is tremendous news. God will finish what he has started in you. It's a fact of life that we all leave unfinished business. 
Sometimes we leave unfinished business because of negligence, sloth, laziness. Other times with the greatest of sincerity and the best of efforts, we just don't have the time, opportunity, knowledge, resources, or assistance. But either way, all of us begin good things in life that will be marked incomplete at the final inspection. But not so with God. What he begins, he finishes. What he starts, he concludes. What he initiates, he consummates. Y'all don't hear me. In fact, God is so great that when he began something, the consummation is embedded in the initiation. When God starts and he's already finished, we just got to catch up to what he's already done. God will complete what he has started in you. Six days, God spoke the world into existence. And on the seventh day, he rested. Rested, why? Because he was tired? No, he rested because he was finished. With his work. And I declare to you tonight that the God of creation is the God of salvation. And this is the confidence that we have in ministry that it doesn't depend on us. God finishes what he starts. I need to rush on to my final idea, but permit me to pull over for a moment and Lift a page out of my own biography. The spring of 2008, God was doing great things in the church I served in Los Angeles. The church my father pastored, the church I grew up in, the church I had been serving since a teenager, almost two decades. And I was invited to Jacksonville. I knew no one in Jacksonville. I was invited to preach at a vacant church. And... Um, it was a holiday weekend. I think they were hedging their bets, not expecting many people to show up on Memorial Day. And they made it clear that we're not considering you. We just want you to fill the pulpit. I didn't take offense to that because I wasn't looking at them either. <laughs> and very quickly, God started orchestrating circumstances that would lead me to that church in Jacksonville. And I was the last person that knew the Lord was sending me to Jacksonville. Um, my life was in one city and in one church. And um, God was blessing my ministry. It wasn't a large congregation. But uh, as, the, as the boxers say, pound for pound, it was the best church anywhere. <laughs> and I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. And so I, I'm playing Moses at the burning bush. You know, here am I, send somebody else. <laughs> and um, we, we were in the process of acquiring property and all of that. And I, I said, Lord, you, you can't send me away now. 
And I said in prayer one day, Lord, this church needs me. And he said, uh, this is like, the, the Lord said to me, not, not, not audibly, it was louder than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they need you, huh? Let's see. And within two months, the Lord called me away from that church here to Jacksonville. There was a young man on staff with me who I expected to come with me. The Lord said, no, recommend to the elders that he be the new pastor. And they accepted that unanimously. And I'm telling you, I flew to Jacksonville for my first Sunday, and the church in Los Angeles said, we need one more favor. We need you to come back and lead the meeting when we will elect our new pastor. Where they do that at? After starting in my new church, I flew home to the old church to leave, to lead the meeting for them to vote on the new pastor. It was as if God was slamming the door in my face. And a year or so later, I was invited back to preach the church anniversary. And after the service, a man walked up to me. I had never seen this man before. He said, little fella. He said, I didn't catch your name. What you say your name is? <laughs> said, my name is HB. He said, uh, where did they say you from? I said, I, I'm from Jacksonville. He said, well, man, you can preach a little bit. Where did pastor find you? <laughs> and I wanted to say, pastor didn't find me. I found him. <laughs> Before I could, I could hear in my heart, they need you, huh? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of things that would tempt us to complain about wherever God has called us to serve. But you do know that God did not choose any of us because we were first-round draft picks that he had to acquire before somebody gave us a better contract. We, we are bench riders who don't uh, deserve to be on the team, but by the grace of God, we are what we are. And we got here too late and will leave too early to have a monopoly on God's program. God does not need any of us. That's why whatever we do for the Lord, we ought to do with zeal, with humility, and with thanksgiving. It's a blessing to be anywhere on God's program. He doesn't need us. What he has started, he will conclude. One more thing quickly. I'll summarize the third to say that in the text, there's not only the affirmation of gospel partnership, the assurance of gospel partnership, but may I say a word about the affection of gospel partnership. Typically, the letters of Paul begin with a thanksgiving and a prayer. There's an added element in Philippians. Verse 7 and 8 adds a section that maybe just can be best described as affection. Without hesitation or reservation, he just opens his heart and shares his affection for the church rooted in Christian love, verse 7, 
and Christian longing, verse 8. Christian love, verse 7. He says, it is only right for me to feel this way about you. That word right is the word righteous, just. It's morally right for me to, I said, God will finish what he starts. I have great expectations about your future. It's only right for me to feel this way about you. If you have confidence in God, it is morally wrong to have a bad attitude toward the church. The Southern Baptist evangelist Vance Havner used to say it well, that it's impossible for the church to drown with its head above water. He says, it's just right for me to feel this way about you, to think this way about you, because I hold you in my heart. What a beautiful picture of a pastor. He doesn't say y'all are on my nerves. He says, you are in my heart. <laughs> Listen to the affection. I hold you in my heart. And there's an alternative reading. You can read, the grammar couldn't read that you hold me in your heart. The context and progression of the text probably points to the common reading, but what you have here is a mutual affection. You're in my heart. He says, you're in my heart because you are all partakers of grace with me. We share in the fellowship of grace. This is why the church should be characterized by love, because all of us got in to the family the same way we rolled in on amazing grace. You've been partakers of grace with me. He says both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. When I was, before I was arrested, I was out ministering. And he says, and let me just summarize what my ministry was like. It was the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I was traveling, writing letters, planting churches, raising leaders, writing letters. He said, let me just summarize all of it. The defense and confirmation of the gospel. I was confirming the gospel for its friends and defending the gospel against its enemies. He says, if you just... If you just keep the gospel first, the gospel by itself is able to build up its friends and knock down its enemies. He says, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you were with me, and now in my imprisonment, Lord have mercy, still with me. Wish I had time there, but Paul is saying the church should be the last place in the world where you find fair-weather friends. Christian love, verse 7. Christian longing, verse 8. I'll wrap up. He says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. God knows how much longing and yearning is in my heart. Hear me. Not to get out of jail, but to be with you. This burdens me. 
some of the precious saints where I serve. And made it to Jaguar games and ain't made it back to church yet. Verse 8 begs the question, when you miss church, do you actually miss church? Paul says, I'm in prison. Don't know what the future holds. I'm not, I'm not yearning merely to get out. I'm yearning to be with you. God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. All right. Here is where I prefer the King James Version. King James Version translates it more literally and less elegantly. Calls it the bowels of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I long for you, I yearn for you with the bowels of Jesus Christ. The word refers to the visceral parts. Literally the guts, the intestines. The bowels. The ancients recognized that when you have strong emotion, love, hate, fear, jealousy, anger, you know, stuff in your stomach start moving. When you're mad, when you're in love, and when you when you and, and so they, they concluded that the visceral parts were the seat of the emotions. It is with, with this language that the Gospels would say of Jesus that he was moved with compassion. Paul says, God is my witness that I yearn for you with the bowels of Jesus Christ, with the affection of Jesus Christ. He is literally saying, the closer I get to the Lord, the more I can hear his heart beat. And his heart beats for you. His heart beats for his church. And so there is no way, brethren, that you can have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. He says, the closer I get to Christ, the more it makes me want to be with you. I long for you. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. I went longer than I intended. Thank you for your patience tonight. One final word of encouragement. Let me just kind of lift a devotional thought to close in prayer with. There's an assumption in verse 8. Christ has affection for you. There are weary ministers here. Hurting ministers here. Lonely ministers here. Weakened ministers here. Burdened ministers here. Christ has affection for you. You can cast all your cares on him. Because he cares for you. You heard of uh, Stillman Martin and his wife, Sevilla. 
They were itinerant evangelists 100 years ago. He would preach, she would sing. And they spent some weeks in a small Bible college to help them write a little hymnal to use in the chapel services. And during their stay, Stillman had a preaching engagement off campus. But when he woke up that Sunday morning, the villa was very sick. And he was so concerned, he determined that he shouldn't go preach. She insisted that he go preach. And they're arguing back and forth. And their son, who overhears this, butts into a grown folk conversation. And says, Dad, if it is God's will for you to go preach today, don't you think he'll take care of Mama while you're away? Chastened by his son's question, he went to go preach while he was away. The villa started feeling better. Cooked a meal, cleaned the house. And in the process of all of that, words started coming to her mind. And she wrote them down. And when Stillman arrived home that night, she showed him the words, and he was so moved that before he went to bed that night, he set them to music. And a hundred years later, the church sings that hymn based on that child's question. Be not dismayed, whatever betides, God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide, God will take care of you. Here's my verse. Whatever may be your test, God will take care of you. Lean weary one upon his breast, for God will take care of you. Let's pray.